Hello, thank you for tuning in to the third episode of CGU Grad Student Council Talks. I am one of the hosts, Arlene Votruba, a PhD student here at Claremont Graduate University in the Cultural Studies Department. And here's my co-host. I am Avalon. I'm the podcast specialist here at the Graduate Student Council. I'm also a PhD student in Applied Social Psychology. Thanks for tuning in to episode three, Grants, Awards, and the Big Pitch, Funding Your CGU Experience. Today we'll hear from Rebecca Donaldson about her position at the Center for Writing and Rhetoric, where she specializes in Fulbright scholarships. We'll also hear from Rebecca Call, who is this year's first place Big Pitch winner, and she'll tell us about her pitch that won this year. And we'll hear from Marcus Weekly, who's the director of the Center for Writing and Rhetoric, as well as the Student Grants and Awards Initiative lead. Today, we are excited to welcome our guest, Rebecca Donaldson, who works at the Center for Writing and Rhetoric as a consultant and Fulbright Scholarship Specialist. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here today. Um, First, I just want to ask, what is your position here at Claremont Graduate University? Thank you guys for having me. Um, so I work specifically with Marcus Weekly um, as working kind of part of the writing center, but I work directly with Marcus and helping students who are applying for Fulbright scholarships. I'm curious, Rebecca, to ask you, what advice do you have for CGU students who are interested in becoming a Fulbright scholar? So Fulbright has many different opportunities available to students. Um, If you're interested in going abroad to teach English or you're interested in doing a research project abroad, um, I really recommend applying for Fulbright. Um, If you're interested in actually applying for a Fulbright, I would reach out to me um, or Marcus um, or even Mary Jo. And these are individuals, we're all individuals who work together Um, to help students walk them through the process of applying for a Fulbright grant, help them search for a country that they're interested in applying to, um, learn a little bit about the process of writing grant proposals and personal statements, um, CVs, and working together to really um, have a beautiful um, application for their application to Fulbright. Awesome. Um, A question that just came up in my mind, Rebecca, is like something you mentioned was like figuring out like your host country or where you want to go to do your Fulbright. Can you give a little bit more information on that? I think that's so interesting. Like how do people usually figure that out? Do they just kind of go based on like if they speak the language already or if they're just interested in that country? Like how does that work? And I know you actually were a Fulbright scholar in Brazil, right? Yeah, that's correct. So in 2014, um, I was a Fulbright English teaching assistant to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Um, And the thing is with Fulbright is that a lot of the countries require some sort of language um, requirement. And so um, it's important to understand what the requirement is of the host country that you're applying to. Um, So Brazil, for example, they do require that you have at least um, proficiency and able to communicate at least in conversation with people before you apply. Um, Every country has different um, application rules. So there's certain countries where there is no requirement for a second language. However, most countries do require it. Um, so if you don't speak um, the language that you're the language of the country that you're applying to, I would recommend working with me to identify countries that only have an English requirement. Awesome. That's super interesting. Yeah, I never knew like how that actually worked. I have a friend who is like doing your Fulbright here at CGU. Um, she's from out of, out of country. And yeah, I, I never knew how that like worked or how you would figure out which country you went to. But that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, and there are some countries that don't have as strict of requirements. Some of them only require like maybe a semester of that particular language. So it's really important to understand um, what they're what they're looking for in an applicant. Um, and you can also be overqualified. So that's something really to to stress about Fulbright applications is that um, when you're applying, sometimes you can be overqualified. For example, if you're applying for an English teaching assistantship, um, they they're really not looking for someone who has a lot of teaching experience. They're they're not looking for someone who is fully fluent in the language. Um, they want to really give the student an opportunity to also learn and acquire knowledge abroad. Um, so it's really trying to find a balance when you're applying for these scholarships. And you mentioned that in, in Brazil, you um, taught English, right? That that was what you did there? Yeah, I taught English at the Federal University in Rio, and then I conducted a research project um, in the favela of Hosinha. That's awesome. Do you have any like fun memories to share with us? This is the one of the questions I wanted to ask. Just any like like maybe culture shocks or something funny or just like a, a fond memory that you have that you wanted to share with us from your time in Brazil? I, I really just loved the people in Brazil and I um I met a family while I was I was living there through a professor of mine and became really close to them and they actually um they moved back to the United States. They had lived here for a little while and they moved back here after we both had lived in Rio and they now live here in Claremont and so I actually have coffee still with my Brazilian family and I'm very close to them. Um so that was probably one of my fondest memories is just spending time with them and um, traveling around Brazil in general and going on beautiful trips with friends and Fulbright scholars and um, enjoying the food and the culture. And yeah, it was a really wonderful experience. That is so cool. That's crazy that like they're here now so you can still connect with them like even in person, um, like all this time later, like in Claremont too. That's so amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. We celebrated my Brazilian mom's uh, 40, 52nd birthday last night. So I'm still very close to them. Wow, that's so sweet. It's really like your second family. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's so sweet. Yeah, it was a wonderful opportunity. That's great. I'm curious to ask you, Rebecca, what distinguishes a Fulbright scholarship from other types of scholarships and grants that are out there? So Fulbright is one of those scholarships that's really well known in the United States. Um, it's looked at very fondly um, when applying for schools and things like that. I think what um, what makes it stand out is it's very rigorous. It, it really they are looking for um, students who have really good grades, students who um, have traveled before, students who are interested in and building a community within their own community and growing that community. Um, they're really interested in people that want to take information from the United States and share it with other countries and then take that information from abroad when they're um, studying abroad and take that back to the United States and really build international community. So it's, it's a scholarship for individuals who really care a lot about culture and sharing culture and community and building that community. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I always like to ask of folks who are in positions of, you know, a con consultation host or tutor of some sort, you know, what kinds of mistakes do you see students make when creating their application uh, so that rather than highlighting all of the benefits, sometimes we can focus on avoiding repeating the mistakes of others? Yeah, so last year was our first year really pushing Fulbright at CGU. 
Um, and I think one of the, I want to say it's a mistake, but something I don't recommend is getting started too late. Um, Fulbright takes a very long time to apply to. Um, there's lots of pieces, lots of things moving, lots of drafts that you're going through. So with Fulbright, you're usually writing a personal statement, a grant proposal. So what is the research project you want to do while you're abroad? Um, your personal statement is really what makes you a good candidate. Um, and then your CV and letters of recommendation. And then if you're applying for a research Fulbright um, abroad, you do need to also get a letter of affiliation from the university that you're wanting to work at. So let's say you want to work in the, you want to get a Fulbright to the UK, for example, you would need a letter um, of support from a university or from a professor at a university from the UK in order to apply. So before you can even submit your application, you have to have a letter of affiliation with a university abroad. And so there's lots of moving pieces and lots of things that need to be completed. And so my biggest recommendation is that if you're interested in applying for a Fulbright is really to get started early. Um, I would say, you know, six months in advance, even a year in advance, um, especially for these research grants is really important um, because I, I did see a lot of students last year who just couldn't finish in time. Um, and it's really sad because they work months on it and getting that letter of affiliation can take, it could take a really long time to get somebody to say yes and to write you a letter of affiliation. And then sometimes there's translation that needs to be done. Um, one student, we uh, needed to translate something from Japanese to English. And so there's lots of pieces that need to be completed. So I'd really recommend starting early. That's really sound advice. Thank you. I've heard of this before, the letter of affiliation. Like I only know a little bit about Fulbright, but I've heard of that, that you have to have like a connection to someone in the country you're going to, even if you've never been there before. And that just seems so difficult to like to make happen because I'm sure that some students go to a country that they've already have some affiliation with. So maybe it would be easier to get a letter. Um, but yeah, is that kind of like a struggle? Like, did you experience that? Like, Kind of, is it kind of like you cold call someone in another country, or like how does that usually go? Yeah, so the English teaching assistantship, we don't need letters of affiliation, um, but most of the students applying from CGU um, are a little bit further in their studies, so they're applying for the Fulbright Research Grant. And with the Fulbright Research Grant, you do usually need a letter of affiliation, um, and it can be very tricky. And so. One of the things that we do is we encourage students to reach out to someone they're interested in working with at a university, so looking at their contact information online. They also have a list of um, professors and people associated with Fulbright abroad in different countries. And so if there is a particular country you want to go to or a particular research you want to do, um, they do also provide contact information for people that you can reach out to. Um, there's also ways of like connecting, you know, with previous Fulbright scholars, um, trying to really get into the, the circle of Fulbright. Um, it's a huge community with lots of people and trying to really find is there someone that could maybe serve as your host affiliate um, is a good way to go about it as well. Um, but they do provide support if you do need help. If you're having trouble, Fulbright will guide you in finding somebody that could possibly write you a letter. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. Because yeah, I, I never understood that. I was like, how do you, how does that work? Because especially like you mentioned, um, with translation difficulties, if you are just, you know, essentially cold calling somebody in another country, and then it has to be translated, like that just seems so stressful. But that's really cool that they have that um, support there for you. So thank you for explaining that. 
Yeah, you're welcome. It's definitely something to get started on early, though, because it, it can be really stressful for students. And I did see a couple students last year have a really hard time with it. Yeah, I could imagine, especially because of time differences, like like probably in, in some places they're applying, it's the opposite time of day or it's the next day. So I can see how that would start adding up and take a really long time to get in touch with people. So yeah, that, that definitely makes sense that applying early is super important. Right. And you want to give time too for professors that are writing you letters or recommendation. You do need um, three of them usually. And so um, I always recommend that students ask months in advance just to give professors a heads up too. I have a follow-up question for you, Rebecca. I'm curious to ask if students are to schedule an appointment to work with you, what can they expect from you as someone to help them on their application? So I help students um, throughout the entire application process. So um, if you're wanting to just talk about countries that you're interested in, if you're wanting to understand further how to apply for a Fulbright Research Grant, for example, um, I can walk you through those steps. I also work one-on-one with students through the writing process as well. So I'm, I'm kind of like a writing tutor, um, and I support students in writing their personal statements and their grant proposals Um, working together, brainstorming. I also offer um, many workshops throughout the year um, talking about personal statement writing and grant proposal writing um, where students can come and work through their writing process and get feedback from others as well as me. Um, So I'm there um, to support the students one-on-one as well as in groups, um, but I'm always available no matter whatever question they have regarding Fulbright. Um, I'm pretty much there for them. I think my last question is, do you have any advice for students who are kind of not certain if they should apply for a Fulbright scholarship? Yeah, I think the first thing I would recommend is reaching out to me. I think a lot of students um, get stuck as to understanding, is this the right year to apply? Is this the right Fulbright to apply to? As I mentioned earlier, we have English teaching assistantships. They have grant, they have grant Fulbrights as well, research grants. Um, and there's a couple others, like there's one for making documentaries and stuff like that. So there's several different options, and I think students don't always know where do they fit. Um, so I would really recommend reaching out to me if you're interested, um, just to get an understanding of is this the right year to apply, um, and is this the right Fulbright to apply to and how the process goes. That's great advice. Yeah, thank you so much for being here today, Rebecca, and answering our questions and sharing your insight on, you know, the Fulbright process and your position, your experiences as well. We really appreciate that. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to CGU Grad Student Council Talks. All right, next, we're going to hear from this year's Big Pitch winner, Rebecca Call. Thank you for being here, Rebecca. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Of course. So first question, what are you doing here at CGU? So what do you study? Um, like what degree are you pursuing before we start talking about the Big Pitch? Yeah, I am a PhD candidate now. I'm working on my dissertation and my program is Critical Comparative Scripture. So it's part of the religion department. And as a part of that, I spent my main specialty is Hebrew Bible. And my secondary specialty is Mormon studies. That's awesome. That is so interesting. 
All right. So first, I want to ask you about your big pitch. So we know that you won this year. And so congratulations, first of all. Thank um, you. So if you like, you can just give us the pitch, but I don't want to put you on the spot. You might be sick of doing it. I'm sure I would be sick of doing it after a while. So you can, if, you, if you're more comfortable, you can just sum it up for us. Basically, just talk about you know, what you talked about in the pitch, um, what your, you know, reasoning was behind it, and maybe like the the PowerPoint slides that you went over, like what you put on that. Yeah, I would be happy uh, to do that. I think I'll first tell you what's on the PowerPoint slide. My slide was pretty simple. Uh, it just had the name, which was Ezer Konegdo. This is a Hebrew phrase that I will explain. Neither helpful nor sufficient. And then I had a picture, kind of a silhouette of a man and woman, like Adam and Eve. So um, I'll just go ahead and give my pitch uh, if that's okay. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I just didn't want to put you on the spot in case you were like, I'm sick of giving the pitch. I didn't know if that's how you felt or not, but no, that's that's perfect. Okay. There's a joke that goes like this. If a man hits a woman with his car, whose fault is it? The man's, because he shouldn't have been driving in the kitchen. This is an example of a kitchen joke, which centers around the idea that a woman's place is only in the home not in a career or having any public influence or authority. Such jokes reflect elements of a cultural view of gender roles that developed from traditional Judeo-Christian interpretations of the Bible. In the creation narrative, found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, it says that God created a single human, usually interpreted to be male. And then the deity says in the King James Version, it is not good for the man to be alone. Let us make a help meet for him. Help meet, defining woman. The meat of helpmeet meant sufficient in early modern English. This phrase, helpmeet or help sufficient for, is translated from the Hebrew ezer konegdo, which has been used for millennia as a touchstone for defining gender roles. <clears throat> Prevailing interpretations historically have viewed women as being lesser and innately evil, thereby justifying male domination of the weaker sex. It is only roughly within the last century that scholars have seriously considered alternate interpretations. However, even with new interpretations, we find a serious problem. Scholars have paid more attention to tradition than to the actual words of the text. The Hebrew for the phrase, ezer konegdo, is linguistically strange, but scholars only mention its abnormality in passing. No scholar to date has conducted a rigorous linguistic study to create an accurate base for interpretation. Thus, Traditional translations and interpretations are neither helpful nor sufficient. And that is what my dissertation aims to remedy. I've examined every occurrence of both roots in the Hebrew Bible and have identified contextual themes connected to these words, which I'm applying to the Genesis account to better understand the nuances of Ezer Konegdo. And what I'm finding is that this phrase has nothing to do with whether one gender should be subordinate or in which sphere women should belong. Rather, this phrase touches at the heart of human interpersonal relationships, what it means to be vulnerable, when and why we become defensive, and how conflict can be constructive rather than destructive. I've discovered that in the text, when this type of help is present, there's massive success. Everything works. But when this type of help is not present, there's tragic failure. Nothing works. In short, the actual conversation in the Hebrew Bible does not even fit within our cultural ideology of gender roles. Rather, this conversation centers around the building blocks of healthy interpersonal relationships in which men and women are both fully power and influential with no need to compete for authority. This fuller understanding of Ezer Konegdo is a much healthier foundation for a conversation about gender. And as such, it is both helpful and sufficient. 
Thank you. That was so cool. That was awesome. I see why you won. That is so, so interesting. I didn't know any of that. And yeah, amazing. Really amazing. I love it. Thank you. Okay. So thank you so much for giving us your pitch. Um, like I said, I, I didn't know if you were like going to want to or not. And I'm, I'm really thankful that you did because that was awesome. Um, so a follow-up question I have about your pitch is like, how did you prepare for it? Like, how did you start preparing um, and also, what do you think made your pitch stand out? Now that you gave it, I see why it stands out. It's really, really good. But like, what do you think makes it stand out? And and yeah, like, how did you start preparing for it? Yeah. So <clears throat> the first thing I did, and I guess I had sort of background preparation that wasn't necessarily active preparation. I mean, this is what I'm writing my dissertation on. So I've thought about it a lot. Um and so I kind of have that, that it's been rolling around in the back of my mind now as I've been working around on it. But then when it came time to start preparing, I actually used the resources that they had on the, on the CGU website. So I first went and listened to the examples that they gave other big pitch winners from around the world, which kind of gave me a feel for the general tone that they were looking for, which honestly to me feels a lot like a TED Talk tone. <laughs> Right. Uh, and so I kind of got that in my mind and already from even just from listening to those and I was thinking, how would I do this with mine? I got little phrases like neither helpful nor sufficient, you know, that that little right. uh, phrase and other things that I was like, oh, I definitely want to have this in there. And then I and then I started listening to the the trainings that Marcus Weekly gave. And really what I did is they were I had missed them at this point. So I was just listening to the recorded YouTube videos. And as he would be talking, I would, I, what I was doing was taking notes on how I wanted to apply it to my pitch. And so by the time I'd finished watching those videos, I actually had a draft of my pitch. It, it still got changed a lot and refined and cut down. It was much too long at that point. Um, and so then I started honing it down and delivering it to other people and saying, what's working? Where are you getting lost? Uh, the middle section in particular got reworked three or four times because people said, you know, you get to the middle section and when you start talking about like how you structured your research, I'm zoning out. Right. <laughs> and so I, a lot of it, I just had to scrap and rewrite again and again. Uh, and then it was a matter of practicing it over and over. So that's kind of how I prepared it. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I, that I think makes it stand out um, I, I feel like I have a strong opener, kind of this unfunny joke that in my mind is a bit outrageous. Right. Like we can all, we've all heard jokes like that too. So it's like, yep, I know what she's talking about immediately. Exactly. So it's kind of this resonance and then, and then building on that. Um, I do, I also really like the title, you know, as their connecto, neither helpful nor sufficient, which since the, the translation, the way the Hebrew has been translated is help sufficient for, it's kind of saying, yeah, well, you think it's sufficient, but it's not actually helping us at all. Um, the way that the conversation has been going. So I kind of like that little play on words in the title. And I, and I do think it helps it stand out. Um, yeah. So those are a couple of things that I consciously tried to make really strong. <laughs> Yeah, it was the opener was so good. it really did draw me in immediately because it's like, 
like I know you're talking about something important and something that we can all relate to because like I said we've all heard jokes like that we've all like heard these statements and just the general idea behind it and yeah I just love how you like pulled that apart and it it seems so difficult this is something I was thinking about because you're basically talking about your whole dissertation in three minutes right like that's that's the idea behind it and I don't even know how I would do that that sounds like so much condensing because like my advisor always says, you know, it's it's harder to condense rather than to like if you write a lot and then condense it down, that's actually harder than writing a little and then building and building. And I always thought it was the opposite. But yeah, that sounds really, really difficult to to narrow it down and and get everything that you want to talk about and still be engaging and everything. So, yeah, that that sounds like it would take a, a lot of work. It, it was a lot of effort. And there were some things that I really wanted to talk about that, you know, in three minutes, I had to cut it out because I can only talk about so much. Yeah, absolutely. But like I said, like, I guess it's, it's a matter of like finding out what's the most important and explaining that. And I think you just did that so well, because of course, there's always, especially when it's your own research, it's like, oh, there's so many things I want to talk about. There's so much background. There's so many like different things we can talk about here, but you did such a good job of like narrowing it down to like anybody can understand it first of all. And also it's like the really important parts and it, it all makes sense. Like it was just really, really good. Well, thank you. Perfect. So um, my next question is what pieces of advice do you have for someone who wants to participate in the big pitch? Like what is your like take home advice if you want to win the big pitch or even just like participate in it? What would you say, you know, like keep this in mind? I'd say probably two big things. One, and, and maybe this seems like silly advice. Don't be afraid to just put yourself out there. Go big or go home. Because um, when I first started thinking, yeah, it's going to kind of be TED Talk. And when I watch TED Talks, it's like, oh, they, they appear so confident and they're really experts. And it's like, wait a second. like I am an expert in this. Like, this is my dissertation. And so kind of allowing myself, yeah. like, don't, don't buy into the imposter syndrome. Like, just get out there and be big and let yourself... Mm-hmm like inhabit that space. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. That's so true that I feel like as PhD students, sometimes we forget sometimes like, oh yeah, I'm an expert. (laughs) Like I am qualified to talk about this because it's easy to think like, like you said, oh, those people are experts. The people in the TED talk, they're an expert and I can't talk like that. But no, like we deserve to talk with authority because especially like once you're already post coursework or you've been, you're in your PhD, like you know what you're talking about. So you deserve that confidence. So I know exactly what you mean. And and that is great advice. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of a mindset thing. And then the second thing is give yourself enough time um, to really work over it multiple times and rewrite it and cut it and then present it and find different people to present it to and to get their feedback. Um, That was one of the most helpful things was going and I I had family and friends that I said, can I have, can I steal your time for five minutes? I'm going to give a three minute presentation. And if you'll give me two minutes of feedback and people were like, oh yeah, I can spare five minutes. And so presenting it over and over and over in order to get it refined to the point that I felt like it, there was no superfluous words or ideas anywhere. That makes sense. Yeah. That like you would need to practice it with different people too, to make sure. Cause I feel like especially like in grad school, we were used to talking to people in our field and using terms that maybe are not normal terms for other people or they've never heard that before. So I feel like it's it's so good, even just like in a normal presentation, let alone for this pitch though, 
to like give it to different people so that you can actually make sure like, okay, yeah, everybody understands this. Okay. And my last question I had for you was, um, did you learn or hone any specific skills from working on and, you know, delivering your pitch? So was there anything like that you learned or like either a new skill or just something you've already worked on, but you really were able to, you know, make better from, from working on the pitch? Yes. The biggest thing, and this is actually where I felt the entire competition was the most useful, um, was that I felt like I learned how to make an effective elevator pitch because when I go to conferences, when I'm networking and people ask me what I'm doing with my research, they're not going to sit for 10 minutes to listen to me talk about my dissertation. I have to catch their interest and throw in my thesis and why it's important in just a few lines. And I don't think I really knew how to do that before then. And it was, it was actually great because the day that I, of the big pitch finals, after I finished the finals, like a couple hours later, I drove to the airport and flew to the big national academic conference for my field, which is Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion. And it was great because people would say, oh, you're dissertating. Well, tell me about your dissertation. I was like, oh, and I wouldn't necessarily give the whole big pitch, but there were sentences from the middle <clears throat> that I would give word for word what I had written and memorized for my big pitch because it explained exactly what I want people to understand about what I'm doing. And so it occurred to me that this is a skill that I will use going forward when I've got books that I want to publish and I have to go talk to an editor or a publisher. And how do I write down a pitch that I know is going to communicate exactly what my book is about and why it's important and why they want to be publishing it? Because that's exactly what I did with my big pitch. Here's why my research is important and here's why you want to be a part of my, like my research and find out what happens. Um, so yeah, I felt it was a very applicable skill that I got from this, from the whole exercise. And so actually going into the finals, even before I made it to the finals, it was like, you know, if I don't make it past the preliminary round, or if I make it to the finals and like, I don't win anything, this exercise has already been worth it for me because it's a, it's, I've learned skills that I'll take going forward. That's awesome. That is such a useful skill. I think that's something that I definitely need to work on, especially as like a newer PhD student. I'm in my first year. And yeah, sometimes it can be difficult explaining to someone the research, especially if they're outside of the field. But even within, it's like, like where do I start? You know what I mean? Like it's it's a lot to explain. You don't know how much background to give or, you know, and, and like you said, people will zone out. They're not going to listen for 10 minutes. So that really mm -hmm. is such a good skill to have in really like no matter if you're in academia or if you're in applied setting, like, like you said, with publishing books, like, I feel like that's just such a good skill, no matter where you go. Well, was there anything else you wanted to mention about your big pitch? Or again, like advice, anything about the big pitch um, before we go? Just that I think it was a great experience. And I'm, I'm really glad I participated. And I would encourage if any of the, the students at CGU are considering it, like take the time, it will serve you in, in good stead. It will not be a waste of time, regardless of how far you get in the competition, uh, because these are important skills that we need to learn to hone as, as scholars. And even for those not going into academia, the ability to present effectively is something that we can use in pretty much any field that we're working in. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Avalon.
You're listening to CGU Grad Student Council Talks. Okay, and our next guest is Marcus Weekly. Marcus, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So my first question was just about your position here at CGU. So what do you do here at CGU? Um, I uh, have a number of roles, but my primary one is the director of the Center for Writing and Rhetoric. Um, formerly known as the Writing Center, it's been a part of CGU um, in, in varying capacities for quite a while now, I would say at least 15 years. Um, and so my primary role is to direct the center. And then um, as well, I also teach teach writing courses uh, in a few different departments. Um, apart from that, um, I also oversee the big pitch or um, you know, kind of brought it here to CGU. Uh, it's the three-minute thesis competition. It's technically a part of you know our programs at the Center for Writing and Rhetoric, but that happens every fall. Um, currently, I'm also the interim director of the International Scholars Program, which is a, a program just for international the, the the international student population at CGU. It's also a pre-matriculation program um, for international students to improve their English language proficiency before um, beginning at CGU. And then another one of the reasons why I'm here, I'm one of the co-leads of the Student Grant and Award Initiative, which is um, a cross-campus collaboration um, to support student grant applications and awards. Awesome. Thank you so much. You are a busy man. You have a lot of involvement here. Yes. Um, so about the Student Grants and Awards Initiative, so I know you already just mentioned that. Um, could you expand a little bit on like what that is or how students can you know use that or yeah, just like a little bit more about that? Definitely. So um, what, what I found um, at the behest of my supervisor, really, who, who had the idea to, to have a dedicated um, you know, initiative or program just for student grant support is that a number of different offices across campus um, were already doing parts of, you know, student grant support, but they could just use some coordination, you know. So there's the uh, Office of Sponsored Research, which is a part of the provost office. And that that office really is geared towards faculty funding support, but also has a dissertation award that, you um, is, is a nice $10,000 award that happens every spring. Um, the Transdisciplinary Studies Program has a dissertation proposal award and a transdisciplinary uh, dissertation award. Um, those are in fall and spring, respectively. And then uh, financial aid also does some help with student grants. And then the Office of Advancement, which uh, writes a lot of grants for the university, was also starting to provide some support for for students. So, you know, uh, as the director of the Center for Writing and Rhetoric, grant writing is um, an essential writing skill for graduate students in most professional and academic degrees. So, you know, I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of jump in and bring these these different groups together and see what we could do in a more cohesive way um, to collaborate in support of, of student grant writing. So, what we have at this point is um, a central website and then, you know, a point of communication. I think for a lot of students, the best way to enter will be um, 
to just reach out to us and to make an, an initial consultation appointment. And within that consultation, we'll go over the different grants and awards that, that we have listed on our website and, and otherwise get a sense of what you're looking to apply for given your stage of degree progress and your overall goals. Draw up a short list and then kind of get at, you know, beginning to develop those applications. Um, depending on the deadlines, kind of, you know, developing plans, supporting the writing of your personal statements and and research and budget proposals, those sorts of things, and, and even provide really hands-on writing support um, and, you know, kind of help through that entire process. Uh, apart from that, we also... Um, are going to start to offer some some webinars here in spring 2020 geared towards uh, general grant writing but then also specific awards within disciplines that seems to be the the best way to do it so um, we're going to announce shortly a webinar for the national endowment for the humanities um, application which is a, a major award for humanities uh, focused students and then apart from those webinars, um, we have a, a targeted program towards Fulbright uh, applications. So again, the, that'll be starting soon. Uh, Fulbright's open at the beginning of March, March 1st. And the deadline, the campus deadline is actually in August. So the busy time for Fulbright's is summer, but we're going to have a number of uh, webinars, workshops uh, through spring. And into summer, we also provide one-on-one -on -one, uh, support with applications there. Um, and that's kind of a, a full-scale support program for students, masters and PhD students in, interested in applying for a Fulbright. Awesome. Wow, I didn't know there was that many services and like that much going on. Like that makes sense that if there is kind of these programs all scattered, that to have sort of like a central place for it all. Um, and yeah, that's that's amazing. I did not know there's uh, that many opportunities. Yeah, um, that's going to be one of our big pushes here in spring as well. It's just to get the word out a bit more. So I'm I'm thankful to be able to be here and talk a bit more about it. Um, and you know, we're we're trying to 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 expand this over time. We're starting with Fulbright. We hope to add a few other targeted programs um, where we can have. You know, because Fulbright is quite specific. I mean, I, I would say it's really right. geared towards um, a master student that's wrapping up and might be interested in teaching English abroad or a PhD student that um, has some, you know, a part of their dissertation research is connected to doing work in another country. Um, I think those are probably the two main scenarios where a CGU student can fit into the to the Fulbright requirements. And actually all four of our applicants uh, from last year were all you know, working on their dissertation and their research was being done abroad in some way. Um, you know, we wanna build out and have a few other targeted programs in addition to the Fulbright one. But I think, I think the, the most helpful aspect of this is that we can really provide that individualized support. We're, we're here to meet one-on-one -on -one with any CGU student um, to talk about uh, you know, your goals, where you're at, um, and to, to drop that list, you know, that personalized list for you specifically, and then support you through the whole process. 
Awesome. That's really good to hear. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. And so another question I had was for students who feel overwhelmed when it comes to funding, who feel like, where do I even start? Um, especially if, you know, maybe they didn't have to worry about funding in undergrad or this is just a completely new process to them. Do you have any advice um, for those CGU students on where to get started, what to do first? Just because, like I said, it can be overwhelming and, and you know, we can feel like, like where do I even start? Definitely. Um, so I think a good place to start is just to start to review some awards and to try to reduce the anxiety of that initial process of just kind of gaining more understanding and knowledge of what's out there, right? Because part of that anxiety that, that is, is coming from just a lack of knowledge. And then, you know, the, the pressure of the expense of graduate school and um, the competitiveness of a lot of awards, right? But the first step is just kind of getting a lay of the land, I think, getting a sense of what's out there. So I would recommend as a first step to go to our website. It's a cgu.edu slash student grants. And there we have a list of um, hundreds of awards and grant opportunities. And they're, they're going to be broken up uh, by both field and then by degree pursuit. So there will be some for master students and then some for doctoral students. And I would go and find you know, your, your area, again, um, you know, by field, and just start to scroll through. Just start to see what's there. Um, click on some of the links, read a bit more about the different awards, um, and try to, you know, reduce the anxiety of, you know, you're just doing this just to learn as a first step, right? Just just to peruse and, and to see the different opportunities that are there. And then I would reach out and meet with us. Um, you know, we can have good, good conversations with you, you know, um, the, the folks who you'll meet with have been doing this for decades at this point, some of them. Um, they have a lot of experience writing grants, and they'll be able to talk you through the process, answer your questions, um, alleviate some of your fears, and also be realistic, right? Um, given the timeframes and the deadlines that, that you're dealing with, uh, to, to be able to point you in the right direction of what sort of awards are going to be worth your time. And then... Another thing is to think of this a bit like, um, unfortunately, because job searches are as well anxiety producing and stressful, but think of the, the, the documents that you are going to produce to, to apply for grants and awards are going to be similar to things like cover letters and CVs or resumes, right? Um, there are templates. Uh, we can provide you with those. We can, we can give you feedback on those. But, you know, the first times you you write cover letters uh those initial drafts just aren't as good and with time and with revision and with learning how to tailor them to specific jobs they start to improve right and the same thing with cvs so you want to get started on your grant materials as soon as possible because most awards are going to ask you for a personal statement most awards are going to ask you for um, a description of either your, your reasons for applying um, or a description of your research project, the, 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 the specific project you're um, applying to the award for. So the sooner you get started at 
getting a draft down of these documents, getting feedback on that draft. Um, we can give you feedback both through the initiative and then also through the Center for Writing and Rhetoric. The, the sooner you start that process, the, the sooner you know your versions of all of those documents are going to improve and you'll have a better chance. You know, you'll go through the experience of applying. You may not get the first ones, but you're, you're sooner to getting you know, the, um, those, those successful applications out by, by the experience of, of jumping in and starting. Awesome. That is very good advice. Cause like what you said about not knowing, like a lot of the anxiety just coming from not knowing is so true because it's kind of like, well, what even, what even is the grant? Like what's even out there? How do you even start? Um, so that's very true that just kind of getting an idea of what is out there for your field and your degree would definitely help. And it's really cool that the student grants and awards initiative is here to just make it a little easier. And so you know you're going in the right direction. Because I think part of why it's really hard too is that you can do all the materials for it and it does feel like kind of applying to a job or even applying to school again, but you might not know if it's even going in the right direction. So that's really cool to have this support there to know, okay, yeah, you need to change this maybe, or, you know, just to to have the support. Yes. And and to to be honest with you, there's a there's a sort of symbiosis between having to write these sorts of documents and then the other sorts of things you have to do during graduate school and after, you know, because depending on your, on your field, a lot of what these grant applications are going to ask you for is to talk about your work, your research, or to lay out your research plan. And those are the sorts of things that are asked for in theses and dissertations and journal articles and, um, Drafting a personal statement is the sort of thing you have to do to, again, enter the job market. So these sorts of um, the sorts of skills, you won't be wasting your time, I guess I'm trying to say, either way. Um, even if, let's say, you don't get your ideal awards, which is, of course, you know, we're going to support you as much as possible to get the awards. But I guess I just, I just want to say that all, all of this sort of thinking and work and writing is is all connected. So um, as you improve being able to, to talk about and do your research, you're gonna be able to, to write better grant applications. And then writing those grant applications are going to give you better experience um, in being able to you know, produce better work <laughs> at CGU, either in coursework or for your post-coursework milestones. So um, the, the sorts of skills apart from even the funding element um, of it, it you know, are, is really important both during your time at CGU and then definitely after as well. That makes sense because I could imagine after all the work that goes into it, it could if you don't get the award, it can just feel like, well, why did I even do this? But yeah, like you said, that's those are very useful skills that you won't regret it even if you don't get the award because then it'll be easier next time or it'll be an applicable skill just going forward. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Well, those were all my questions. Um, was there anything else you wanted to mention? Um, no. Uh, you know, I th- I think I've touched on the, the the key points. And you know, if just as a as a final a final statement, just visit our website and don't don't hesitate to reach out. The sooner you reach out, um, the sooner we can we can get started and start to take the initial steps that that um that will lead you know eventually to to, you know, those really solid applications and, and some successful awards. Perfect. 
Well, thank you so much for being here today, Marcus. Yeah, thank you for having me, Avalon. Appreciate it. There you have it, folks. A few ideas about how to get started funding your education here at CGU. Thank you so much for tuning in to CGU Grad Student Council Talks from Studio B3 here at Claremont Graduate University. I've been your host, Arlene Botruba, and my co-host here, Avalon. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and make sure you tune in next month for our next episode, which will be on CGU's Global Community of Scholars, where we'll highlight our diverse community here at CGU. I'm your co-host, Avalon Whalen, and we'll see you next time.